You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. How y'all doing? Steve, how come Evan always goes last? Somebody asked us Tradition? Where, where, how we came up with the order, and they were like, is it by age? Is it alphabetical? Like, what algorithm are you using? <laughs> you're, you're, se- you're separating the novellas accordingly, is what and you're said, doing. Well, it, it's, it's actually, actually, it's just historical contingency. If you remember back in the day when both Perry and Rebecca were on the show, we had six rogues, and I only used five every week. So it was me, right. Bob, Rebecca, and then Jay, Evan, and Perry. You guys rotated. Whoa, ah, holy crap. Yeah. I remember that. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. I had you guys I last. had forgotten. For about, a, for about a year. Yeah, yeah and then, and then obviously shit. when Perry died, we were down to five. I didn't replace him. So I had everybody every week, and I just kept the order. You know, ah, and then so when Rebecca left, I just replaced her. You slot. took her slot exactly. Mm-hmm. Hilarious, yeah. That's why I'm second because she was always right coming in. Then oh, that's great. Okay, guys, I have to tell you about something super annoying, super funny, whatever uh-huh. that happened to me this weekend. Sunday is my relaxing day. Sunday is the day when I do as little as possible. So say right. Lord on the yep. seventh day. Yes, and Kara prepare rested. for the week. Mm-hmm. So yes, exactly. So on the seventh day, I am. Lying in bed, half asleep, actually quite asleep, and I wake up to a start. My boyfriend is yelling from outside, Carrie, you need to wake up and come out here right now. And I'm half asleep, you know, groggily come outside. My dog, the genius that he is, got into a fight with a skunk and lost. Oh, boy. Yeah. He charged the skunk. The skunk lifted his tail, and Killer was like, and just went for it and got sprayed directly in the face. (laughs) Steve, I know what you're Uh, thinking. All up in his eyes. It was, um, what what are you thinking, Steve? Oh, we had the same thing happen to our dog when we were were kids. Many, many, many. Except except the the mommy skunk had like three or four little baby skunks. It was adorable. That is really cute. (laughs) This was apparently... Apparently a big fat skunk, um, like twice the size of my dog, which is hilarious. And or as as my boyfriend <laughs> says it, hoot, it's like a fishing tail. The fish was this big. Um, yeah, I didn't see any of right. that happen. But so I immediately used the folk wisdom that was in my brain, which was wash him down in tomato juice because I had uh, that in my that'll, that'll cabinet. Chestnut, right? Yeah, it doesn't really do anything. So then I called the vet because I looked online and it said if they get sprayed in the eyes, it can cause corneal scarring. So you need to take them to the emergency room. Oh. And I called the vet and i said he was straight in the eyes is he okay i've been flushing them with water nonstop, and she was like honestly that's all we're gonna do and we're gonna charge you a bunch of money for it so just keep doing that and if his eyes swell shut in the next couple hours then you need to take him in but his eyes were quite clear within a few minutes which was nice um but she gave me a recipe here's the recipe if anybody wants to know this is a tried and true vet approved skunk smell recipe it mm-hmm. is a quart of hydrogen peroxide a fourth cup of yes that's american a fourth cup of baking soda and a teaspoon of uh dish soap detergent and you yeah. mix that all together yeah and but you can't leave it on their fur for too long if they're if they have dark fur because it'll bleach their fur the hydrogen peroxide will so that sort of worked then we did a uh, puppy shampoo i blow dried him he was super stressed um, his face still smelled, so I did like a vinegar water wash and scrubbed it all over his face. His ears still smelled on the inside, <laughs> and you know so the skunk spray is um 
oil based. So yeah, I got right. some so alcohol. Off, yeah. yeah, exactly. It doesn't come off easily. So I put alcohol and uh, cotton balls, soaked them in alcohol, put them in his ears because I know that can evaporate um, and go into solution. He's 98% better. I still sort of smell it on his face when I get uh. really close to him, but um, much better. The house smelled for about two days because of course when i yelled down keep him outside i thought i it was implied that that also meant close the damn door (laughs) but apparently it wasn't so we had to spend a day with every bathroom vent and the big powerful vent hood over the um cooktop on because those all vent to beyond the um the attic like straight to outside so that was fun yeah wow woohoo living by griffith park on your yeah. day off. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. We always had a black standard poodle in my family for years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a memory of our poodle being down at the end of the road under the street light, and we saw a mommy skunk with two or three baby skunks all nailing him, like lifting their tails and just spraying fog onto him. <laughs> <laughs> right um, in his face, I remember. Yeah. In and, the face. Wait, so. you remember by you remember at the corner by the streetlight? I yeah. remember near the mailbox. Well, it happened more than once, Bob. Well, we were, we were standing <laughs> at the mailbox. He was down the road. Steve, you're about to correct all this not and tell him what really happened. Memory. I mean, I don't, I don't that, have my kind of, my memory kind of, of it is not that detailed. I think I came to the to the party late. I remember <laughs> the smell. I remember the, our dog like goofy running around like ha ha. You know, he was a very <laughs> smart dog, but he was also a goofball. But he had like no sense when it came to skunks. Well, yeah, I mean, it really reinforces what we did to these things by artificially selecting for cuteness. Yeah. They have no, um. like, wild capability. It's like, you see a skunk, you run straight at its butt. Like, that's not what you're supposed to do. Um, how was he? Was he, like, pawing at his eyes? Did he throw no. up at all? No, he, that's he, good. He no. acted like it didn't bother him at all. That's yeah. hilarious. So Killer didn't throw up, which is good, but he was pawing at his eyes pretty incessantly for about 20 minutes. They say, <clears throat> they, from everything I was reading, that the skunk stink is chemically quite similar to pepper spray. So their reaction is often similar to a pepper spray reaction. Uh, like It's not, you know, going to be a lasting thing, but it's super irritating to their sinuses and to their eyes and stuff at the beginning. Yeah, it's a sulfur yeah. compound called a thiol. <laughs> That's what that's what the skunk smell is. That's why the, yeah, that's the formula that you mentioned actually does neutralize it chemically. So it is that should work. Yeah, yeah, it should work. It's just I think the thing is, you know, their anatomy is interesting. You're not supposed to get it in their eyes. So you're avoiding their eyes the whole time you're washing. It's just very hard to make sure that you've covered every square centimeter of a dog's fur and skin, especially when it's all in their crevices of their face. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, over the summer, every couple of weeks, you're driving down the road, and yep, there's a skunk smell. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, and God. in Los Angeles, the whole city smells like that anyway. You can never tell if it's a real skunk or if it's just like a cloud of pot smoke. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> skunk yeah. Weed. All right. Well, you survived. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so right. did the puppy, and that's what's the most important. And he doesn't have any vision damage. I'm yeah. very excited oh, about that. Oh, thank goodness for Survived that. through science. All right, (laughs) Bob, get us started with a forgotten superhero of science. Yes, this week I'm going to talk about Lillian Gilbreth, 1878 to 1972, who was a psychologist and industrial engineer and a pioneer in workplace flow and design. It was actually Gilbreth's husband that got her interested in workplace efficiency, so much so that she changed her major um, in school from literature to psychology. Uh, eventually graduating uh, with a PhD from Brown University in 1915, 
Yes, it goes back quite a ways, well, over a century. Her dissertation was The Psychology of Management. So together, her and her husband essentially ran a consulting firm, which did a number of things. One of them was time and motion studies. You may have heard of them. So they could basically take any job, you name it, any job, and then decompose it into the most critical, fundamental tasks uh, that's required to to, uh, to to do it successfully, and then make them easier and more efficient. They also did fatigue studies, which later became ergonomics, mm. a, oh, a, a, cool. right? A mm. name that everybody everybody has heard. So, uh, so much of the work they published together um, only had his name on it, which may seem kind of obvious if you think about it, especially going back into the to the teens and twenties over a century ago. And even though she was the she was the only real psychologist, uh, you know, of the two. Um, and it's because publishers thought, and uh, you know, this was at the time made sense. They thought that it wouldn't be taken seriously otherwise. So yeah, it didn't even matter. It just she was a woman, so they they kind of would insist or require that the, that the husband was the name that was really seen. But so when her husband died, though, what do you what do you do? She continued with the company, of course, but uh, she was having trouble because it just really wasn't going to be taken seriously. So she then focused on an environment that she would be taken seriously in. Uh, the place that men at that time all thought women belonged. Yes, the kitchen. Oh, so no. she she focused on the kitchen, oh, but but she excelled there, of course, as well. Turning what was essentially um, an all day back breaking job, much worse uh, than what than than what you think of as today. You know, the work being done today, yeah. um, into one that can be done in a matter of a few hours, really freeing up women of that time for the first time. Do you have any examples, Bob? Yeah, she uh, she came up with modern kitchen designs. Uh, the work triangle you may have heard of, uh, the oh, linear, yeah, yeah. the linear kitchen. These are layouts that are still used today. Uh, for mm. some specific things that she came up with, she's credited with the foot pedal trash can. Hello. Uh, pretty <laughs> awesome. cool. How about yeah. this one? How about this one? Those shelves on refrigerator doors. Oh my God. Really? What? And with oh, the, bu- wow. the butter yeah, they didn't tray before that. and egg keepers. She, she, from what I, my research is telling me, she came up with that. And and this one kind of blew me away. How about this wall light switches? What the hell? What are you talking what? about? They didn't exi- where where were they Ergonomics, before that? Maybe. I don't know. On the it, floor, so you do with your feet. What? <laughs> I don't know. But she was. Oh, maybe one you of, didn't have the switches first. back then. They weren't wired. You just pulled each lamp individually. May- Interesting. Uh, maybe. But uh, so that so that was huge. So those those are just a few. So Gilbert also was one of the first working female engineers to have a PhD of that time, and she's also considered to be the first industrial organizational psychologist as well. So amazing life, amazing impact. So remember Lillian Gilbreth. Mention mm-hmm. her to your friends, perhaps when discussing ethnographic analysis, macroergonomic analysis of structure, or even cognitive walkthroughs. What's amazing is I have been in conversations with people and granted not so much recently but not too long ago where guys have argued that – you know, or asked the question with the implication, well, how come all of the big scientific discoveries were made by men and not women? Mm. And yeah, it's like, yeah, that's because you just don't know about the women because they were completely systematically ignored. Yeah, that's because the history you're reading was also written by men. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but to me, that had an impact on people's perception, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. back all the big names of science are guys. Yeah, but it it was clearly systematic, you know, suppression. And despite that, there are some women still broke through and did amazing things. Um, This is a good one, Bob. I like this. Also, the, Mm. the fact that 
you know, I think the, the, the again, forgotten superheroes are often people who make contributions to our everyday lives. They're not sexy, but they have a huge impact. And then we take them, we instantly take them for granted. You know what I mean? It's like the wall switch is a perfect one. You think it's so obvious, but no, somebody had to think to do that. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Kara, you're going to start us off on the new segment with uh, satellite broadband. So last week, the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation convened a hearing to explore Elon Musk, everyone's favorite, or I should say Jay's favorite, um, Elon Musk's vision <laughs> of a worldwide broadband by deploying what he calls a, quote, constellation of satellites. The hearing was actually titled Investing in America's Broadband Infrastructure, Exploring Ways to Reduce Barriers to Deployment. You can Google Google it and you can read the minutes from it. Um, among other things, the committee discussed Elon's license application to the FCC, which was filed in November of last year, in which SpaceX, quote, this is an actual um, pull from the application, seeks operating authority, i.e. approval for orbital deployment and station license for a non-geostationary orbit satellite system in the fixed satellite service using the, and tell me if I'm, is it KU and KA frequency bands or is it KU and KA? How do you pronounce that? Do you oh, guys I know? know. I, would, oh, I, I would use sure. the letters. I think it's KU. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's capital K, lowercase u, and capital K, lowercase a, frequency bands. Um, so SpaceX is VP of Satellite Government Affairs. What a cool job title, you guys. Yeah, I'm the VP of Satellite Government Affairs. Um, <laughs> her name's Patricia Cooper, and she made a statement at the hearing. So I'm going to read it verbatim because I think it really um, shows you what they're going after and why this is necessary. She quotes the FCC's own reports saying, quote, According to the FCC, 34 million Americans lack access to 25 megabits per second broadband service, and 47% of the nation's students lack the connectivity to meet the FCC's short-term goal of 100 megabits per 1,000 students and staff. As the FCC has noted, there continues to be a significant disparity of access to advanced telecommunications capability across America, with more than 39% of Americans living in rural areas lacking access to advanced telecommunications capability as compared to 4% of Americans living in urban areas and approximately 41% of Americans living on tribal lands lacking access to advanced telecommunications capability. And then here, this is super interesting. While more than 23 million Americans living in rural areas account for the majority of those who lack access, nearly 10 million Americans living in non-rural areas also lack basic access to high-speed internet. And as this com committee well knows, the U.S. lags behind other developed nations, as we all well know, in both its broadband speed and in price competitiveness, and many rural areas are simply not served, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Matt Williams wrote an article about this for Universe Today, and he noted that a 2016 Cisco report concluded, guys, this is blowing my mind, global IP traffic, so basically just all the traffic on the, the World Wide Web, or the internet as a whole, has surpassed the zettabyte threshold. Whoa! Oh, zettabyte, yes. awesome! You guys, Bob, that, we're there! Yeah. Yeah, so we've been means, talking about it for 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's translate that cuz a zettabyte is big, right? 1000 oh. billion gigabytes of data were exchanged yeah, right. across the internet in a single year. And by 2020, that number is expected to double. That's only 3 years away. A trillion gigabytes, nice. Yeah. 
Okay, so get this. It's estimated that by 2020, internet users will reach almost 5 billion. That's almost three times the number of users in 2010. So looking back just seven years ago, 1.7 billion people were using the internet. By 2020, just 10 years later, 5 billion. And almost 14 times the number of users at the turn of the 21st century. So in the year 2000, there were only 360 million global internet users. Really? Yeah. So I know it's crazy. It's hard so to fathom. SpaceX, of course, wants to be prepared, ensuring that everyone has reliable access. Their proposal is really bold. They want to launch 4,425 satellites by Falcon 9 rockets between 2019 and 2024. And beyond that, they also want to deploy 7,750 satellites into lower orbit that'll relay the signals to areas of greater population that need them most. So guys, that's 12,175 potential new pieces of space junk. And of course, there's going to be other companies competing for a piece of this pie. So I'm wondering what you guys think. Good idea? Global internet for all? Bad idea? Contributing to this global space junk cloud? Any way to square that circle? Make it both? Fix the space junk issue, but still get global internet for all? Where do we sit on this? I would think that those satellites are your entry point to the internet, right? Your connect, your device is, I, I'm assuming, I mean, unless they're going to have ground-based things that are going to be like- They the are. They're going to have ground-based things too. So it's three-tiered, they said. There's 4,000 some odd satellites up in a higher orbit. There's 7,000 that are lower down in altitude. And then there are these ground-based, um, I, I don't know what they call them, hubs. I could try and look up exactly what they called them. Ground control facilities, gateway earth stations, and end-user earth stations. Yep. That yeah. sounds so futuristic. Yeah. I mean, I would think that the whole point here is the satellites are up there to give internet everywhere, right? They want to canvas. Exactly. That. Yeah. So yes, your device will, will have to be able to connect to the, to the satellite in one way or the mm -hmm. other. I don't know if it has to go through a ground-based hub first or not, but the point is they're going to be canvassing what would seem like to you a Wi-Fi signal everywhere. That's, yeah. That is utterly amazing. Yeah, that people in countries where there's no infrastructure, so long as they have the right devices, which we know is happening, right? We look at places where access to clean water is trumped by access to cell phones. Well, I, I, I'm blown away by it. I think it's technologically achievable. Um, I'm not worried about them littering outer space. I mean, when you think about You're not, well, wait, hold on. There's a big, it's, okay. you know, it's the start <laughs> of a thought, right? Um, what? I am in general, you know, moderately horrified about how we've littered, uh, you know, low earth orbit. And, you know, if you look at the, the, uh, orbits chart of the earth and all the debris that's out there and they're only tracking stuff that's from a certain size up, you know, there's stuff that's smaller, that's, you know, dangerous as well. But however, I don't think that what Elon is doing is going to is going to pollute outer space in a, in a way. I mean, this is a guy that owns and runs a space agency, and I'm sure they're going to be they're going to have a very good space etiquette. But there is a limit to how many things we can put up there until we start really cleaning it. And thank thank uh, the maker that they they are actually <laughs> <laughs> they are actually coming up with legitimate plans now. Not SpaceX, but you know, the, in general, the what would you call it the uh, the space community. 
they're really taking it seriously, and we're hoping that we're going to have some solutions for that. So what are you going to do, Carrie? You can't stop progress. You really can't. No, you can't. But I'm interested, is there, like, right, this was a hearing with the Senate committee. They're talking to the FCC. At what point does this go beyond American borders, right? Because if we're talking about, yeah, it's easy for us to all go, yeah, SpaceX can do this. It's just SpaceX, and they're going to fix everything. It's like, no, there's going to be so many competing interests. Who regulates space? One thing that was noted, it was only one sentence in this article, but was that the idea of space junk was not even mentioned at the Senate hearing. Not even mentioned. Because the whole thing is about, you know, how do we get broadband to everybody? It is an important, important question, but didn't even talk about that. And that's the problem that we keep making. That's why climate change is where it is. That's why space junk is where it is. We love innovation. We worry about mitigating stuff later. I would love to figure out a right. contingency while we're doing it from the beginning. And, and believe me, governments are great at kicking cans down roads all the time. So I have very strong opinions about space junk. That's a, that's kind of where my, where my focus is because the worst case scenario is kind of horrible. The worst thing that could happen is that you have one big satellite hitting another big satellite causing the debris. And then that debris does the same thing to others and eventually – in low Earth orbit, effect. yeah, this domino effect will give you a low Earth orbit with, that is completely uninhabitable by satellites or even or even people. Right. It's not like we can go and clean it up and start over again. Nope. It's, it's, it's beyond I mean, that. and people are working on that, right? People are working on mitigation efforts, but it probably costs – I mean, I'm going to throw a random number out there. A hundred times, a thousand times, a million times more to clean something up than to just make it – figure it out, figure out the contingency at the beginning, well, right? We are, yeah. No, we're sense? at a cleanup already. We're, we have to actually deploy yeah. devices. We still that are have gonna, to do that. Yeah, and they've come up with a lot of interesting ideas, but nothing – that seems to be able to get to cover the ground, right? Now think about this. Mm-hmm. Think about the area in outer space that this debris is existing in. You know, when you think an acre or a square mile or whatever, we're talking about I wouldn't even know how to put it into that that kind of spatial terms. It's enormous amounts of space. Yeah, we we have to use space sustainably basically. We have to realize it's a finite amount of space. We have to be careful about everything we put up there. We have to make sure that it's not going to become garbage at some point. I mean, they are trying to design satellites that deorbit when their life expectancy is over. Yes, and that would be amazing. Because- It'll be hauled away as garbage. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Kara the uh, outer space is regulated by the Outer Space Treaty. Nice. Which has a bunch of stipulations, you know, one of which is that you, you can't clutter up space. <laughs> no nukes in space. Okay, we're doing yeah, a great right. job on that. Oh, no nukes shall avoid the harmful contamination of outer space. Yeah, it just takes one rogue entity to really kind of muck a lot of stuff up. Rogue. Yep. One bad, <laughs> one bad player, one bad character on the world stage. Maybe really we need to mess. like get to the point where like if you want to put a satellite into orbit, you got to take the equivalent amount of space, space junk out of orbit. Oh man, oh, that would be nice. cool, like a replacement I, thing. I, yeah. I just, That'd I just be- thought of something. Think about you could commit space terrorism where you make this avalanche happen. That, yeah, of course, that's not a new well, idea. Oh my god, that yeah. is horrific. The Chinese right. almost did it. Oh mm-hmm. my! Don't even get me started. That was horrible. Look Bob what we could do. We could we could shoot a laser and blow up a satellite. Oh, and yeah, and make I mean, that could have that could have gone much worse than it did. But it, I know they almost killed Sandra Bullock. <laughs> almost. <laughs> but the ghost of George Clooney helped helped her out. Save her, yeah. Thank That's goodness. right. I got to see that movie. True story. Again. All right, let's move on. So, but we have a, a bit of extreme anti-vaccine nonsense this week. 
a bit of extreme nonsense. Yes. Oh. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a couple of things, and everyone's going to going to follow up. First off, there was uh, a study that the anti-vaxxers have been flogging recently, what they're claiming is the first vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. And of course, as you might suspect, pretty much everything in their claim is not true. First of all, this is not not really a study. It's more of a survey. And it's, it's not the first uh, look at the outcomes of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. But what this study is, is, uh, first of all, like, which we've seen this pattern before, like with Seralini's anti-GMO study, it, the methodology was utter crap and it was retracted, uh, mm-hmm. and then republished in an even worse journal. And in fact, this one was retracted a second time. Wow. This is what, what, uh, my friend David Gorski calls a zombie study because it just keeps coming back from the dead. Uh, it was <laughs> first published that. in a low rent <laughs> Open access journal called uh, Frontiers in Public Ac- in Public Health. The lead author is Anthony Mawson, uh, who is somebody who is sympathetic to anti-vaccine views. So there's a clear bias there. So it's okay if you have a bias as long as the methodology of your study is rigorous enough that it doesn't matter. But if you have a bias and you have a very non-rigorous study where your bias will come through, then of course it does matter. Um, so the the method of this study, they, they claim it was designed as a cross-sectional survey, but it's really just a crappy survey. It's a, so it's uh, they sent out a survey to parents um, of children who were being homeschooled. So they call this a convenience sample, right? Because they're they're doing this because it's easy. But you know, home so homeschooled children are not necessarily representative of the general population. But that's not the, by any stretch. That's the least of the problems with this study, though. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem is that they have no idea how big the population that they surveyed was, because it mm. just got forwarded through emails to families who were part of these homeschooling networks. I'd also be interested to see, I bet you, the rates of anti-vax parents among homeschooled children are higher than the general population. It, it could be. Yeah, because, I mean, there are sometimes motivations for taking your kids out of school. But it gets worse because the information they were getting was just self-report from parents. So, in other words, what medical issues these children had was just the parents' report. It was not based on any medical records. Oh, Same gosh. Thing. So think about how many kids aren't allowed to go to public school because they're afraid of, like, electromagnetic sensitivity. That's true. <laughs> and these are parents, some of them, who might be filling out these reports. Right. And, and of course, their vaccination status was also by self-report. That's a problem, right? So the problem with surveys, the big problem that is that um, they're self-selective. So parents can choose whether or not to, rep- to respond to the survey. And, of course, there might be a huge difference in motivation to respond. Mm. If you think your child had a negative outcome of, vac- of a vaccine, you're like, I want to respond to this damn survey and you know document how my child is harmed. And if you didn't, if you, if you don't think there's any problem, you may not decide to respond, right? Because it's not an issue that you're concerned about. So one way to estimate how big the self-selection effect might be is to measure the percentage of people who respond to the survey. So if you sent out a 1,000 surveys and you got 950 back, so you have a 95% response rate, okay, so any self-selective bias is limited to that 5%. 
in this case, they have no idea what their baseline is. So they don't even know what the response rate is. But for these kinds of internet-based surveys, it's generally very low, like single digits, which means all you are measuring, all you are measuring is the bias of who decides to respond. That's it, right? Mm -hmm. It's worthless data. It's utterly worthless. And I feel like any psychologist worth their salt would know that, um, but not necessarily. And any epidemiologist, epidemiologist, yeah, anybody who deals with this kind of self-report data, but who knows if like these researchers even thought about that. Yeah. They should have. The combination of it being a non-representative population with a self-selective, you know, uh, survey responders with an unknown base of, of people being surveyed and the outcomes are also self-determined and not verified makes this utterly worthless. And it showed exactly what the bias of the people funding and carrying out the study wanted it to show because it was designed to show that, that there was uh, – that in the in the people who responded to the survey – there was um, a higher incidence of neurological disorders among children who were vaccinated than children Mm -hmm. who were less vaccinated or unvaccinated. Totally unsurprising result, but utterly meaningless, which is why the low-rent journal, open access journal, withdrew it. They retracted it. So then they shopped it around some more, found an even lower-rent journal who published it, and apparently now they have even retracted it. So... Yeah, but the but to the anti-vaccine community, this is just fine because it shows what they want, and so they present this as uh, as if it were real scientific evidence, and then of course they'll um, dismiss actual rigorous scientific studies because they don't show what they want. Well, I'm glad that first journal at least had some integrity and did retract it. Yeah, yeah. Which was unusual for them. It says something for them. It didn't even meet their low standards. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This doesn't meet the lowest of low standards. That's absolutely correct. (laughs) It's not a scientific study is the bottom line. Okay. Right. One more thing and then we'll move on to Evan. There's a new darling of the anti-vaccine movement, which uh, she's actually been making the rounds for a couple of years. But she's come back in the feeds. Again, this with social media. Things just make the rounds. Uh, and, and you get a new life out of old news. So this, listen to this headline. Harvard study proves unvaccinated children pose no risk. Oh, every I word, saw that. every word in that headline is wrong or misleading. Wow. So first of all, herd, so herd immunity is just a mirage. Yeah. So this is, <laughs> they're talking about a, mirage. A, a doctor of immunology. So somebody with a PhD in immunology, Tetiana Obukin. Good luck. Obukinich. Obukinich. I think that's it. Tatiana Obukinich. And she has, apparently has credentials and, Mm -hmm. you know, in immunology and, you know, has all these anti vaccine views. So, of course, the anti vaccine movement loves her. Mm. Um, Turns out, though, that she, first of all, she uh, isn't at Harvard. Oops. She wasn't trained at Harvard. She has no apparent academic affiliation at the moment that anybody can find. She may wow. have been a, like a postdoc for a time at Harvard, which is a very tenuous connection. So, and this is <laughs> not a study. A they say a study. Harvard study. Oh, it's right. not a study. There's actually no study. It's just okay. her opinions. So it's not. <laughs> it's just somebody who was a postdoc for a short period of time at Harvard wrote an article of their opinions. 
And that turned into a Harvard study. <laughs> Doesn't wow. it scare you, though, <laughs> that this – I don't wow. know. It's like there's no way to regulate crazy scientists. And I've, I've had questions about this yeah. before because the general public doesn't know the difference, right? Oftentimes, somebody with expertise, legitimate expertise in a certain field may have some off-the-rails opinions – and then all of a sudden they can speak with authority, even if it's not their topic of record. And if it is their topic of record, that's even scarier. I trained when I was getting my master's with a woman who got her PhD in the same neuroscience lab. She was a Seventh-day Adventist, and she thought that Jesus put fossils in the ground to test our faith. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she 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 got a PhD in neuroscience. Did they not know that, Kara? He knew. My professor knew. And we would be at the bar sometimes, and she would start to say crazy shit, and he would be like, you better shut your mouth. Like, do not show me those cards, because I won't yeah. in good conscience be able to pass you. So she kind of knew how to walk the walk there, and at yeah. least he had some integrity about that. But at a certain point, she could probably argue religious freedom, and there would be a big whole thing there. So it's just, it's scary. It's scary that you okay. there's still woo peddling within the scientific community based on people's personal opinions. Uh, Bukinich's arguments, again, it's not a study, her arguments are all crap. Uh, so first of all, in terms of her, this is like the, a good example of the false argument from authority, right? She doesn't actually have any authority. She's a lone crank who happens to have a PhD. She actually, her name appears on only 10 uh, research papers, but only one as first author. And none of them have to do with vaccines. So this is this is somebody okay. who, if you look carefully at their actual academic career, she could be little more than just a glorified technician. You know, she's not really doing any research, doesn't necessarily really have anything to do with vaccines or understand it. She wrote a book. It was it was a short rant that she self-published, right? But she can now say she has a book, but she was self-published. So again, nobody evaluated it or no publisher decided that it was worth publishing. Plus, always remember books are not peer reviewed. They're not peer reviewed, but they may be, they may be edited, right? So at least if a publisher and an editor co go over it, you could think, okay, there's something of value yeah, here. Yeah. But Deepak Chopra has written a lot of books. Yeah, too. that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, or, yeah, yeah, but they, but they are not, a... they're not, they're reviewed, but they're not peer reviewed scientifically. Exactly. exactly. Right. So in, in that book, this is the definition she gives of immunology, of her own alleged field of expertise, right? <laughs> she writes, a science that studies an artificial process of immunization, i.e. the immune system's response to injected foreign matter. Immunology does not attempt to study and therefore cannot provide understanding of natural diseases and immunity that follows them. Really? What? That's wrong, right? That's like your body generic. responds regardless of the, how it got there, right? Or what it is. Yeah, right? yeah. Immunology yes. is the study of the immune system and uh. its response <laughs> to all threats, whether it's infection, foreign, tissue, you know, rejection, all of that. But you could see the bias in her description of her own field. From her website, she also writes this. But natural evolution does not produce faulty mechanisms and those would and those would have been selected against over the millennia. Mother Nature does not fail us. When we oh, meet no. the requirements oh. that suit her mechanisms, I am wary of insufficient emphasis given by biomedical authorities to meeting the requirements of nature of natural immune defenses from well, infancy on. So appeal to nature fallacy from sure. beginning to end. She's a crank. Her, mm -hmm. her credentials don't matter. Her flimsy credentials don't matter anyway because she's a crank. All right. So 
her opinions. I can't go through all of her crappy opinions because it would take the rest of the episode. Yeah, but she's just – let me give you just one example. She argues that for something called oh, – here we go. The measles paradox, right? Measles research scientists have for a long time been aware of the measles paradox – and then she quotes from an article, failure to reach the goal of measles elimination, apparent paradox of measles infection in immunized persons. The, the apparent paradox is that as measles immunization rates rise to the high levels in the population, measles becomes a disease of immunized persons. So that's because the measles vaccine works 95% of the time, which means if 100% right. of the people were immunized, 5% would be non-responders, it's like 4.7% or whatever. Uh, it's about 5%. And – so when when most people are vaccinated, then in a, in an outbreak, most of the infected people are going to be people who are vaccinated. That's just math, but it's it's irrelevant. It's not the way you should look at it. The, what the real question is: What's the risk of getting infected if you're vaccinated versus unvaccinated? And if you're unvaccinated, the risk is often like ten times or greater oh, chance greater. of getting infected. Also, you have to look at it in terms of herd immunity. If most people are being vaccinated, even with a 5% non-responder rate, that's high enough to have herd immunity. So if a, a, if a measles gets imported from the outside, it won't cause an outbreak. It won't have enough people to spread to. But if you have people in the population who are non-responders and you add to that people who refuse to get vaccinated for whatever reason, then the levels can drop below herd immunity. And then when you have an introduction uh, of like a measles case, that does cause an outbreak. It absolutely is the vaccine refusers who cause the outbreak, who allow it to spread and who are disproportionately at risk for getting infected and passing it on. So they mm. do pose a risk. They absolutely mm -hmm. pose a risk to the public health for that reason. Non-responders, that's not their fault. Any of us could be a non-responder. That's just, you know, that's just the odds. So her logic is absolutely faulty. It's she also argues. All right, I have to give you one more example. She also says, <laughs> "Oh, there are some vaccines that are that don't protect against infectious diseases, like tetanus." Yeah, okay, yeah, tetanus vaccine is to keep you from getting really sick if you have a puncture wound and you get tetanus toxoid. So okay, so what? That's like saying, well, "Yes, oh, what does that have to do?" Seatbelts don't prevent you from crashing your car. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're not meant to. That's not their purpose. Yeah. Their purpose is to reduce the damage. If you do get into a crash, so what? But we still need other safety measures. She's like saying we don't need anti-lock brakes because seatbelts <laughs> don't prevent you from getting into a car crash. Yeah, That's that makes exactly no sense. what she's saying. She we don't need the measles <laughs> vaccine because the tetanus vaccine doesn't prevent an infectious disease. I mean, a communicable disease. It's just absolute nonsense. That's her logic. That is the level of evidence that we're talking about. But now, she, again, she's the new darling of the anti-vaccine movement because she's got some letters after her name and she's spouting their brand right. of utter nonsense. Well, and that's Harvard a scary thing. study, and they turn that into a Harvard study proves none of those words are, are actually wow. true. And Evan's going to tell us about an actual real-world example of the, the harm that this causes. It's a, almost a perfect seg segue in a very sad way. Yeah, the health officials in Minnesota continue to scramble to contain a measles outbreak that has sickened primarily Somali-American children in the state of Minnesota. Yeah, I read about this. So, yep. Yeah. So far, health officials have identified 48 cases 
uh, mostly in the counties of Hennepin, Ramsey, and Crow Wing. And they are very concerned that this is going to continue to spread. Uh, so measles, real quick, is a highly contagious respiratory disease that causes rash and fever. Uh, in some cases, it can be deadly in very extreme untreated cases. The measles virus spreads through the air through coughing and sneezing. Center for Disease Control and Prevention say two doses of vaccination are about almost 97% effective in heading off the disease. And measles is so contagious that if one person has it, 90% of the people close to that person who are not immune will also become infected. Yikes. All right, here's the breakdown of the 48 known cases. 46 of the 48 are children, 10 and younger. 41 of the 48 are Somali-American. And 45 of the 48 have not been vaccinated against the disease. Steve, that's pretty much right on line with the 5% yeah. figure that you cited uh, just before. Also, uh, for this particular uh, part of the country, they typically see one or two cases a year. That is considered the norm for the area for measles. We are already at 48 confirmed cases. This is the largest measles outbreak in Minnesota, in any community in Minnesota, in almost 30 years. Uh, state officials say that most Somali-American two-year-olds in the area have not had the vaccine. Almost 60% are not vaccinated. Yep. So how, how why did this happen? Well, it's unequivocal. The unfounded claims that getting vaccinated can lead to autism, which is one of the biggest, biggest health-related lies of our generation. That is what is exactly responsible for this. In this small pocket of the country, the anti-vax movement has poisoned the minds of these people so thoroughly they live in fear of autism by vaccination. Uh, it started in around 2008, and this is when parents started to notice a disproportionate number of Somali children receiving special education services for autism in Minneapolis. And at that point, the anti-vaccine groups started to target the community. At the same time, the MMR vaccination rates began to plummet. So as parents searched for answers as to why some Somali children were diagnosed with autism, they landed upon the work of disgraced British quack Andrew Wakefield, the man who first proposed the link between vaccinations and autisms in a paper and later found to be fraudulent. So the quack Wakefield met with Somali families there in 2010. And the Minneapolis health officials say it's not too hard to draw a line between this targeted misinformation campaign and the current measles outbreak. Because if you look at the chart, prior to 2008, Somali Americans in that area were right up there with the rest of the state and their vaccination rates just near 90%. But today it barely treads at 40% vaccination rate. Oof, yikes. Di direct correlation. You can see it on a chart. And didn't Wakefield say he doesn't feel responsible no, at all? Yeah, he did. Yep. yep. And and that's, the, you know, I was going to bring that up. Like, okay, so why can't we draw a straight line between the people that are telling other people to not get vaccinated and responsibility for the event? I think we can. Think we can, but people refuse to. And the really sad thing is I'm seeing all this rhetoric that's like anti-immigrant rhetoric yeah. coming out of this, like yeah, blaming right. them like, oh, these Somali people and their tribal thoughts aren't getting it. It's like, no, 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 no. There was like an actual campaign. Yeah, these, sorry, these, these are white privileged yeah. Americans who are poisoning them. Right, this right. and white privileged their, British people. Yeah, yeah, they did not import. <laughs> you know, the MMR causes autism belief from no. Somalia. This is Andrew <laughs> exactly. Wakefield and the anti-vaccine mm -hmm. movement, and it also shows how even if overall 
If overall the vaccine rates are high, you get a pocket in a community of vaccine refusal, and that population is vulnerable. And so that's what we see. Yep, even to those who had the vaccination. Yep, an, an unfortunate example, but man, how cold-hearted do you have to be, Andrew Wakefield, to target a vulnerable community like this with your nonsense, just to, just to keep flogging that dead horse? Unbelievable. But at a certain point when people double down this much, you do have to kind of wonder, is it all just to cover their ass, or are they buying what they're you know, they're buying what oh, they themselves it's probably are some blend. Yeah, it's probably exactly. some blend. Some combination. They convince themselves of their own bullshit, I think. Sure. Who, yeah. But it's ultimately irrelevant because it's, you know, the, the, the validity of your claims, the due diligence, you know, that's what matters. It, you know, the degree to which you believe your own bullshit doesn't, doesn't affect the ethics that's of true. what you say or do. And we can't read their minds, so we'll never ultimately know. But I mean, this is literally like right out of Princess Bride. Like when death is on the line, you know, when kids are, are getting <laughs> diseases that they don't need to get and some of them are dying because people are, are telling other people, don't vaccinate your kids. No, that's too far. You can't do that. You should not be allowed to, to spread that kind of dangerous misinformation. That is dangerous. People are dying from what other people are saying. You know, it's one thing if some schmuck loses their money because they're stupid. Okay, that's that you're in this you're in the pit. You're in the pool of sharks when you when you're born. Life is hard. Jay, I know it's frustrating. Trust me, I know how frustrating that is. But what you're talking about is essentially the science police. And if you're willing to draw that line, then you're talking about criminalizing all alternative medicine, basically, because that criminalizing you just, mistakes. you just described all of alternative medicine. Uh, right, entire professions, all of of naturopathy, basically. Uh, well, so, so be it. I but think there's also low hanging fruit, <laughs> Steve. There's low hanging fruit that should be easier. Yeah, Steve. Look, uh, but look, it just might not be the right mechanism. I don't think it's the right mechanism. Just criminalizing it and letting the government decide is probably it's not going to happen. Well, not going to happen. First of all, and it made the that solution may be worse than the problem. Then find, yeah, find, them, find them for doing it. Look, if there if there is a if there is a legitimate worldwide consensus on something, and we're seeing the direct result, then why can't we do something? That's all I'm saying. But, Steve. Yeah, just. Where, uh, Where's yeah, the action? What, what you're suggesting that we do, though, I think is really a blunt instrument that would backfire and have unintended consequences, and that would be horrific. But what, you know, what I, I'd like to do is for the regulatory agencies and systems that we already have place to do their damn job. That would be yeah. a good start. How about if they just did what they're supposed to do, like mm-hmm. maintain a reasonable science-based standard of care within professions – that would be nice. Uh, not right. not license quacks. That would be nice. Let's start with that before we get to the thought police. Uh, I don't, and we, and then we probably wouldn't even have to go there. You know, if we did that, it, we should be able to marginalize the the quack fringe. Unfortunately, it's they they make inroads because of the lax regulations. We don't need new regulations, really. We just need uh, the regulations that we have to be reasonably enforced, and then unfortunately they're not. And they're not because people don't want it, Jay. The political will is not there because we are in the minority. You have to remember that. It's not going to happen because, because it's just, there's no political will for it. All right, Bob, you're going to tell us about gases. <laughs> oh, 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 boy. 
<laughs> yes. Astronomers have found in a distant galaxy cluster a wave of hot gas almost twice the size of the Milky Way galaxy. So I feel like I'm a major contributor of the gas of our <laughs> galaxy. <laughs> We're waiting for that. Good one. Uh, so this is from a new study that will be in the June 2017 issue of the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So sometimes uh, you don't look through a telescope, metaphorically these days, of course, uh, and just see what's there. Sometimes you have to, in effect, look through maybe a couple telescopes um, at the same time and then kind of interpret all that through the filter of a computer simulation. And that's kind of exactly what they did here with NASA's famous Chandra X-ray Observatory uh, in conjunction with radio observations and computer simulations. So it took all of that to really get a handle on what was actually going on here. So uh, an international team of scientists were looking at the Perseus galaxy uh, cluster using Chandra X-ray data. And uh, if, so if you looked at the, at the constellation of Perseus and zoomed in, uh, you would see, uh, and maybe waited enough time for all the photons to gather, you would see one of the biggest collections of matter in the known universe, uh, 240 million light years away. Uh, it's a gravita- gravitationally bound collection of about a thousand galaxies, more than a thousand, stretching 11 million light years across. So, uh, amazingly huge structure. Cl- uh, clusters like this are some of the biggest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. Clusters are pretty fascinating. The, one of the, you, you would think, uh, you know, what's in a cluster? Well, obviously you got stars and then you also have galaxies, right? That's, it's just a collection of galaxies that are bound together. Uh, but another major component is neither of those. It's, it's a distinct set of, of hot gas that pervades the entire cluster. So it's not just like within solar systems or between stars, but between the galaxies themselves. And the gas is pretty incredible. It can account for 90% of the total mass of the cluster. Uh, and when I say hot, I'm talking tens of millions of degrees. So hot, in fact, that the gas glows in X-rays, which we can detect here on Earth, like with the Chandra. Like with, with Chandra. Bob, what's up with the uh, the gas between the galaxies? Like, how does it get so hot? Yeah, it's weird. You think, well, wait, this gas is just kind of sitting in between the galaxies. How is it? Why, how could it get that hot? And there's, there's a few different ways. Uh, first off, you've got galaxies plowing through this gas, right? I mean, this is extra, extra galactic gas. So you got galaxies flying through it. Uh, so that stirs things up and raises the temperature. You've also got a bunch of galactic cores pouring out lots of radiation. That could do it. And you also have galactic clusters colliding, which kind of, uh, feeds into this very news item. So after hundreds of of hours of observation, uh, the Chandra data revealed an X-ray image of this glowing multi-million degree gas that was a combination of things um, that they knew that were there. They knew like, oh, I know what that is, but what the hell is that thing? Um, So the gas showed recognizable structures like uh, bubbles in the gas created by black holes in the in the cluster's central galaxy. So they knew what that was. But they also, in the gas, they they saw this weird concave structure that they called the bay. Um, and it, but it didn't make any sense. It wasn't related to any nearby black hole activity. Um, so, and astronomers had never seen anything like that before. Um, so they, they needed more information. So they decided to, to enhance the image. So this is when they combined the, uh, the x-ray data with some radio observations. Um, and then they, they, they kind of filtered it 
to enhance the edges to make the details really pop. Now, that's the image that's being passed around the internet, um, and it's beautiful. Um, I, it's even hard to describe. Seriously, look it up. Look up the image. It's kind of like this flaming tunnel into hell. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay. I love it. I love um, that you're like, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's <laughs> a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. So, so they, they took this edge-enhanced image, and they compared that to the simulations of galaxies and galactic clusters merging um, that they were running on the Pleiades supercomputer. What an awesome name um, for a supercomputer at NASA's Ames Research Center. So here's the scenario, the theoretical scenario that they think might have happened. So billions of years ago, the gas that makes up the Perseus uh, uh, cluster had two primary regions. You had a relatively cold inner region, which was a about a 30 million degrees Celsius, which I know doesn't sound very cold, but compared to the outer region, which was 90 million degrees, it was, you know, relatively cooler. So these two major regions. So then you had a smaller cluster of galaxies, uh, perhaps with a mass of many hundreds of, uh, of Milky Ways. You had this, this other smaller cluster do a close approach to the Perseus cluster, getting, getting fairly close, about 650,000 light years away from the core. Um, of the Perseus cluster, which is, you know, sounds like a, a huge distance, but, you know, we're talking about on the scale of millions of light years. It's very, very close. NASA then describes the gravity's effect on the gas like this. They just, they likened it to uh, cream stirring into coffee, creating an expanding spiral of cold gas. So we've all kind of seen that. You pour pour milk into tea or coffee and you see kind of see how it spreads before you even uh, spin it with the spoon so this this outward spiraling disturbance then went from the colder inner region eventually out to the warmer uh, region over two billion years so yeah this is a very very slow stir of the coffee it took two billion years um so when the two fluids meet that are moving at two different velocities that's where that's when you get these waves that the, the, these waves that that they found in Chand in the the Chandra image, the way this bay that I described was, you know, as I said earlier, was the size of two Milky Ways, two hundred thousand light years across. That's a big wave. I dare you to find a wave bigger than that. And these are called, they think, Kelvin Helmholtz waves. That's what they think this is an example of a common wave called the Kelvin Helmholtz wave. And we see them in water and in clouds here on Earth all the time. So it's thought that this is exactly what we're seeing here, only one of the biggest ones ever seen. Um, perhaps perhaps the biggest physical wave ever created. I mean, sure, it's possible. Pretty damn huge, 200,000 light years. So that's it. The simulation showed that this weird bay structure is probably could be uh, an immense wave caused by this near collision. So, uh, so they looked at other at other gl- clusters and they found, like for example, this is the Centaurus cluster, and they're seeing similar structures in there as well. So, so, so there you are, the biggest wave ever, twice the size of our Milky Way, probably caused by a near collision of the biggest types of structures in the universe, multi millions of light years across. And I feel very small. But <laughs> Me too. I'm fascinated in my s- small size. I'm quite fascinated. Cool stuff. You're still infinitely larger than other things, Bob, so don't worry about it. <laughs> in- infinitely? Almost right. near infinitely. How's that? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bob. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. So last week I played This Noisy.
It almost sounded like a giant coin, like coming to rest after spinning around, but then not oh, quite. Oh, that's interesting. It. Nope. Hmm. Um, oh, oh wait. La- last week, last week, Jay off air. I don't know. If I suggested it might be a weapon of some sorts. It sounds like a yeah, and I said machine gun quality to it. I said something to you like interesting. You got you're you're on to something a little bit. Okay. Okay. So first of all, there were no winners. Nobody won this week. And this, and I'll tell you what, what blows my mind is I've probably had 30 or 40 people send this one into me. <laughs> so, wow. what happened, That's guys? Where are you? That's so, so weird. Yeah. I now, <clears throat> now, what I did, though, was I waited until I got a version of whatever it is that was a little offbeat. It wasn't like the same one I saw over and over again. So let me tell you what it is. So Nathan Stiles sends this in. And essentially what this is, it's a laser that's cleaning a piece of steel that has rust on it, right? You've all seen this on YouTube, correct? Hmm. Yeah, maybe you've heard this version of it. Have you heard that one? No? No. No. You listen to more noises than we do. Well, that yeah, that's like the typical sound that you hear when you when you see you know you hear about the laser cleaning a piece of steel. So the laser the laser is pretty damn powerful, guys. This is a thousand watt laser that has wow. an incredibly focused beam that is turning the rust, the layer of rust, into plasma. It superheats it, turns it into plasma. That's and pretty that's cool. It. It, well, that's it, hot. It, yes, it's hot. Now you would think, why is this? Why isn't this affecting the underlying metal? And the reason why is because the underlying metal is highly reflective, so it's not absorbing the light the same way that the layer of rust is. The layer of rust is highly absorbent of the light, so it's really cool. You see, like this band of laser, like a, a, a line of the laser light going over the piece of steel, and it's just turning the uh, the rust into into dust and yeah evan man you you do not want to turn that laser on your arm no not that one yeah all right i want to know specifically what this noisy is I'm looking over my shoulder for Gollum. No, that was <laughs> Jay. Uh, that well, was you, wasn't it, Jay? No, was it? <laughs> I was, know, it was someone I know pretending exactly to what be that you. is, and I'm yeah. still impressed. Oh, God, I love this noisy. <laughs> so if you know what that is, uh, I want absolute 100% precision, okay? I take this very seriously. But that that is probably one of my all-time like top five noises I've ever I've ever played. I love it. Good luck. <laughs> Email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org with your guess and any cool noises that you heard this week. Good luck. Thank you, Jay. All right, Kara, what's the word? All right. So the word this week is confabulate. And it was recommended by listener Matt Strada in DC. Um, he actually said, A few weeks ago, the word confabulate was used on the show, and I realize that despite college and graduate degrees out the wazoo, I am not entirely sure I can distinguish the meaning of that word from a number of other con words. I thought a segment going over the meanings of these words would be interesting and helpful. So, uh, confabulate. 
This is interesting. This is a word I think that Steve and I use a lot. Um, and I think people who study the brain, but also people who study psychology and psychiatry use this word a lot. But when I looked it up in both Merriam-Webster and Oxford, which are generally thought of as the two kind of standards, the first definition is, quote, to engage in conversation, to talk informally or to hold a discussion, which really? actually makes sense. Yeah, to confab. Like when people say confab about that, that's what they're talking but about. But that's not what but you course, mean when you use it. No, of course, I never think of it in terms of the first definition because Gee. I think of it in terms of the more psychology and psychiatry definition. So have, did you guys ever use it as just a casual conversation? Yeah, of course. Yes. You do. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Do. Okay. Never even knew that it meant that. So thank you, Matthew um, or Matt. I'm learning something new. But let's talk about the way that we, uh, Steve and I generally use it in a scientific context. We're not talking about a casual conversation. We're talking about psychiatry and psychology, as I mentioned. It's a fabrication, typically of a memory in an effort to fill in missing gaps. This is why eyewitness testimony is often invalid because people confabulate a lot, especially people with certain types of brain damage. They'll confabulate to fill in the holes in their memory. So a confabulation is a fabricated memory. The verb confabulate can actually be traced back to the early 1600s. It comes from the Latin confabularis, which is the past participle of confabulari, which can be broken down into con um, from com which means together, and fabulary, which means to talk or chat. Okay, so that's the first definition. That comes from fabula, meaning a tale or a fable, right? Tale or fable. Confabulate was first used in 1924 when describing false recollections of amnesia patients, and it was actually a substitute for Sergei Korsakov's term, very famous neuropsychiatrist or neuropsychologist, um, namesake Korsakov syndrome, which is an amnestic syndrome. He used to use the term pseudo reminiscis, which is quite poetic, but didn't exactly catch on. So confabulation took its place in the 1920s. Did you guys know that, that that was the meaning that we usually mean when we say that word? No. How funny that there's a word that means two totally opposite, not Mm -hmm. opposite, but totally disparate things. And that probably half the rogues use it in one respect and the other half use it in the other. And likely we're always like, what? Why would you say that? That doesn't make sense, but let it go. <laughs> yeah, that's the only – that was the only definition I thought. <laughs> Me <Yeah>. too. <laughs> so definitely so in over 20 years, whatever, I lost a lot of sense about some words that I think are colloquial, but they're really medical. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I just, oh, it's just sure. that part of my speech, and I kind of lost a little bit of track of what words that people know. Well, I was know. in, I was um, working at a news station today earlier in the day, and I was sitting there with my producers, and I was like, guys, when you hear the word confabulation, what does it mean? And one of them was like, like a fabrication, like a lie. And the other one was like, no, to talk. Like a confab, and I was like, "Shut up! <laughs> this is amazing." It really, you know, it almost rubs you the wrong way, right, Kara? <laughs> no, I love it, but I get it. I get what you're saying, but I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, that's cool. All right, we're going to do one question this week. This one is about the electric universe. This one comes from our our Facebook page, and the commenter writes, "Hey, SGU team, I've been a listener for a couple of years now and love the show. I had a friend trying to tell me a while ago." A how modern cosmology is wrong and that we live in, in an electric universe. His links seemed pretty bogus and threw up a red flags right away. 
Have you ever covered this on the show? I tried to search if you had, but couldn't find anything. Thanks for any feedback. Keep up the great work. So I think we mentioned the Electric Universe. I don't think we've ever done like a really deep mm. discussion of it. What is it? It's pretty fascinating. Jay, you want to get us started? Yeah, you know, I also got an email from a, a listener named uh, Jim Palfreyman who, who was saying he had a run-in with the Electric Universe people. I think some of his research got used from one of his papers in, in – in one of the, I guess it was a YouTube video. Interesting. This is actually, um, you know, one of those pseudosciences that the people that believe in it are feverishly uh, believing in it. They have a lot of, a lot of like weight behind it. So that the electric universe is a theory. And uh, let me come back to the, the, my use of the word theory, but I'm, for now, it's a theory <laughs> that claims that the formation and existence of, um, of various features of the universe are, are based on electricity and magnetism and not just by gravity. So on its surface, you're like, all right, well, what do you got? All right, it's interesting. And then, um, you know, but we dig into it and, and you'll see as I start to read off just the things that the electric universe says is reality, you will find that it is pretty much at odds with, as far as I can tell, every single thing that modern science has figured out about the universe. So first, guess who is 100% wrong? It always starts with... X is 100% wrong. Who's X? Einstein. Exactly. <laughs> He's wrong. And that also means that general relativity is wrong. The electric force can travel faster than the speed of light. And, you know, from what I'm seeing, they're saying near infinite velocity, which pretty much means infinite velocity. The universe isn't expanding. Gravity actually uh, has two poles. They call it a dipole gravity. It's like a bar magnet. They believe that there really? is an ether. And it's filled with neutrinos. Ether? Ether. 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 I say ether, Steve. All right. Ether. 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 Planets give birth to comets. Let that sink in. What does that mean? Planets give birth to comets come shooting out of planets' asses. Like they carry them for a gestational period. (laughs) Yeah, right? Nine nine million years. Stars (laughs) are not actually, uh, you know, the, the internal nuclear nuclear fusion caused by gravitational collapse, right? <laughs> That's not happening. That's not happening. The pressure wait, wait, wait. The, the star yeah, Bob. Say that said, wait, wait, what did you say? Stars don't pressure? have in, internal nuclear fusion, which is caused by a gravitational collapse. They don't have that. They are actually uh anodes uh-huh. for galactic uh-huh. discharge currents. Oh. Well, yeah. we totally got that one wrong then. Yeah, when you see like um, impact craters on the moon or on Mars or Venus or whatever, these aren't these aren't caused by large impacts. These are caused by electrical discharges, like whipping out mm-hmm. and cutting these things into the surface of these planets. Wait, like even on Earth? Yeah, Grand Canyon. Fascinating. The sun is uh, is negatively charged. Um, the solar wind is positively charged, and the two systems form a gigantic capacitor. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is all under the Thunderbolts project. Uh, I guess this is like that's the group of people that uh, that come up with this stuff. So is it a cult? I mean, you yeah, know, it's a cult. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it just depends. On, you know, like know. you think cult and more religion, but yeah, I mean, the people it's that kind of a religion. This, yeah, they're pretty damn serious about it. Um, I found one of their websites where they listed all of their enemies. I thought was interesting. Oh, nice. Is Newton places, an enemy? Well, it's all the places that are talking about them. You know, they're, they're tracking it, it all, you know? Oh, they're going to add SGU to that list. Awesome. Yeah. Really? Enemies. <laughs> never know. Yeah, all let's the same people. <laughs> Maybe. So just, Enemies. You know, it's, critical it's thinkers. A, it, it's another one of those conspiracy theory slash, you know, pseudoscience 
you know, overturn all of physics. The big thing I kept reading about, which was really interesting, is giving science back to the people. That what? it's too complicated. What? So they came up with something that isn't that complicated. <laughs> <sighs> yep. Right. Scientists aren't people, by the way. They're That's aliens. Right. And right, and yes, and yeah, all they do, aliens. all they do, is take it away from people. Yeah, they they're just too complicated. So man. yeah, they're speaking <laughs> alien language. No one can speak it. Now, Kara, you know what? I, I was thinking about this quite a bit. If I ever met someone that believes in the electric universe, you know what I would say to them? What? La la la. <laughs> la, la, la. la, la, la. <laughs> Sounds exactly like you. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. I wish I could do it as good. Are you sure there's an electric universe? I'm positive. <laughs> <laughs> That's your best joke of the year, Evan. All right. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the aquatic ape theory, you know, in that uh-huh. it's just a bunch of coincidences and circumstantial evidence piled together. And then people who don't understand how science works are compelled by it because they think, oh, it's all these things are pointing in this direction. But they don't realize that, no, nah, see, the thing is, if you're going to do science, you got to come up with some testable hypotheses. Yeah, and, then, and, then you, and then you got to, you know, test them. And, and you got to <laughs> right. build, you know. build a model of, yeah. the, of the universe slowly over time, yeah. you know, by communicating with other scientists and yeah, write know, a hashing paper and it have out. Other and, people, yeah, like let them argue over it. Instead, no, forget that. I'm just going to just weave these t- stories totally cut off from reality and just spin off into my own little world. That's the definition of a crank, right? That's what cranks do. <laughs> they may be sophisticated. They may use like a lot of jargon and think about stuff, but it's totally disconnected from the process of science. It's just making shit up. And that's not science. Yeah, it's like the purest definition of pseudoscience. Yeah, exactly. It's using scientific words. That don't make sense. Right. You know, there's a lot of this going on. I mean, Steve and I were involved in the email recently um, where this guy sent was sent around a paper to a bunch of uh, scientists. And, you know, oh, I got that email too. Yeah, you oh, guys yeah. got that, right? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah. And he had one of those like – Steve. he writes us this big thing about how – you know, talking about what he believes and what he wrote and it's all – you know, he's overturning all of science. And Steve wrote back – to the guy and say, hey, man, you got to publish your paper and get it peer reviewed. Like, what are you doing? And yeah. he wrote back and argued with Steve about it. Yeah, about how nobody will publish him because, blah, 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 because the mainstream science. Yep, and that's really always know. the argument, right? They don't want to know. It's an ivory tower. We're not welcome there. It's like, or okay. you're an idiot. Yeah, or you're wrong. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. You're an elitist bastard, Steve. <laughs> I know. I am so an elitist, elitist. bastard. <laughs> All right, guys, let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Of course. Hmm. All right. Uh, Jake gets to go first. The theme is (laughs) Homo Naledi. Oh, shit. Homo Naledi, only a couple years <laughs> old. Yeah. Homo Naledi? What the hell yes. is that? And you know what? I it, <laughs> Okay. We've been calling it Naledi. When I interviewed the woman who wrote Seven Skeletons, I think mm-hmm. she pronounced it like Naledi. 
Really? Homonalidae? Yeah. Holy and crap, I, like, I kind of like it. And I was like, am I pronouncing it wrong? And she was like, maybe I am. It's so new, nobody knows. It's whatever. I like Nalidae, <laughs> yeah. though. Homonalidae. I know. Me too. All right, I'm a convert. You, you convinced me. Okay, here we go. Item number one. Item number one. So far, specimens have been found from at least 18 individuals, and researchers expect the cave, that's the cave where they found Homo nalidae, the cave con- contains many more specimens. Item number two, evidence suggests that the nalidae bones were likely brought to the cave by predators. And item number three, although the nalidae specimens share primitive traits with australopithecines millions of years old, the remains have been dated to between 335 and 236,000 years ago. All right, Jay, go first. So this first one here is saying that the uh, specimens have been found um, of 18 individuals. And they think there's a lot more in the cave. That's okay. So 18, that's a lot. That's a lot of, uh, a lot of specimens. Now, I admit I don't know how old these specimens are. But since these are not Homo sapiens, I would say, you know, it's got to be pretty damn long ago. But if they're in a cave, the environment is dry, which is good. That'll help preserve things. So, all right, 18, but that's a big find. That that one is on my list. Again, I will remind you, this is all guesswork. Evidence has suggested that the Naledi bones uh, were likely brought to the cave by predators. Now, that that one's in – if one and two are science, predators dragged 18 corpses into this cave. Damn, what the hell were they fighting back then? Okay. And then that means that the predator lived in there, which means that the predator would probably have bones in the cave as well, which isn't mentioned here. Now, you're saying that the the, the lady specimens shared primitive traits with Australopithecus millions of years ago. The remains have been dated to between 335 and 236,000 years ago. Okay. So that is a long time ago. I'm going to say that, number one, the finding 18 individuals is the uh, is the fiction, and I'll tell you why. Because if I don't think that if a predator brought bones back, I think the predator would have eaten the bones. Okay. So I don't think there, I don't think there would have been that many remains left. I say number one is the fake. Okay, Kara. We did see that recent article about a deer that was found eating human bones. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yep. I thought that, I didn't bring that up because I thought that might come up tonight. And yeah. um and by the way, mm-hmm. it does look like it's Naledi. And maybe I had uh, my own confabulation. Maybe I thought it was Naladi, and she corrected me that it's Naledi. Who knows? I don't know. Um, okay. What is my choice? My, I just wanted to clear that up because I don't want to throw her under the bus. Um, <laughs> yeah. My choice is that they were brought to the cave by predators. My reasoning for that is that the other two seem realistic. Like I'm trying to think of what human predators would have been hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, maybe large mammals, maybe um, scavengers even could. If, if, it, if it were scavengers, that would seem more realistic. But I, I just don't see animal like large and we are big prey generally speaking. And like I can't even think of standard animals that like drag large prey into big piles and feast on them that way. It just doesn't seem realistic to me. Um, based on any of the knowledge that I have in my noggin. Kara, didn't you watch Star Wars Episode Five? Uh, the creature that, that dragged Luke into the cave and he had all the bones in there. I mean, you clearly didn't watch the movie. I did watch Planet Earth and Planet Earth 2, and I don't remember seeing any of this in that. So right. mm-hmm. I okay, don't know. Well, point taken. I'm going to go with that one, but okay. who knows? Okay, Bob. The, f- the first one, the fact that there's 18 individuals and they expect that it contains many more, I was first, at first, 
brush, I was like, nah, 18 is such an amazingly, awesomely huge number that he can't, the guy who discovered this can't possibly get even more lucky and have many more left. Um, but then I heard number two. Um, <laughs> I just don't, I don't think Predators brought it in there. First off, they made a big hullabaloo about having to find super skinny women in order to get to these, in order to get to these bones. Uh, assuming I'm actually talking about the correct fossils. Yeah. So th- for number three, which one was three? Yeah, the time frame sounds about right. I forget. I totally forget how far how, uh, what it was carbon dated. Actually, wasn't this released without a carbon dating? And it was like a kind of like a little mini scandal. Like, wait, why would you report on this without? I don't think you can carbon, carbon date. date. You can't carbon you have date. To use that other methods. Yeah. Long. It's a different kind uh, of radioactive. Yeah. Radioisotope. Then was it radioisotope? Well, well a, whatever it was, they they didn't do any of the dating. They didn't do any dating when when the, when it was first released. And I thought that was very very odd. I even talked to somebody who's in the biz and she was like, yeah, that is kind of weird. So I'm going to stick, I'm going to say that number two, that it was brought to the cave by predators because I don't think predators would, you know, uh, would even go that deep into a cave and, and eat their food in such an inaccessible area. I mean, I think they would bring, bring the bodies to the, near the mouth of the cave where there's some protection, but not that deep. I mean, that just seems, seems, doesn't seem to make sense. So I'll say the, uh, the Naladi cave predator thingy is, Fake fiction. Okay, Evan? I thought number one was going to be the fiction because 18 individuals, I thought at the time they found seven, roughly seven, but maybe since then they've identified more, have gone back in for more. It's been about a year and a half, maybe two years since we initially heard about this. So that's that's plausible, plausible. But for the same reason Bob came up with, if I recall the picture, you had to real. It was this elaborate path you had to take, and like Bob said, some very you know uh, particular people, women, could on, were the only ones who could possibly get in there. So, you know, a predator for the for um, Naledi would be what? What would have possibly dragged it into this sort of very very remote spot? And um, if I recall, the the pristine nature of the find was. You know, really uh, exceptional. Um, you know, something you usually don't find, and I think that would lend credence to the fact that they were not dragged in there that uh, by a predator. So I have to agree with Karen and Bob. I think that that one's going to be the fiction. Okay, so you all agree on number three. We'll start there. Uh-oh. Although Naledi, although the I'll go back to Naledi since that seems to be the consensus. <laughs> although the Naledi yeah. specimens share primitive traits with Australopithecines millions of years ago, the remains have been dated to between 335 and 236,000 years ago. You all think that one is science, and that one is <gasps> science. That's the Yay! new news. That was the new bit of news. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they didn't date the fossils initially, but they have now. Yeah, I, I read the headline. Oh. I didn't read the article. Yeah, it would have been so nice. God, that's yeah. like so close, like 236. It's like very human, surprising. Almost they, humans. They were expecting they were going to be a couple million years old. And so wow. they were very surprised by that because of the primitive, quote unquote, primitive, but by which we mean ancestral features, right? This really, you know, was kind of challenging for paleoanthropologists to try to figure out, oh, Christ, how do we draw these family tree lines now? You know, if you, when they did an analysis, a statistical analysis of this, of the, uh, the Homo naledi skulls, 
that analysis predicted that they would be much older because they share some primitive features with the Australopithecines. But they also have some more derived or modern features that they share with Homo sapiens. So the question is, you know, how did these, when did these features arrive within the human lineage? And, you know, so it could, it could make sense if they, if, um, like Homo naledi and, and humans share a common ancestor that goes really far back. And naledi is a side branch that retained the primitive features for a long time. Okay. That would explain that. Well, you know, the line that led to us went on to develop other modern features that naledi didn't. Uh, but that means that they really, that this is a side branch that persisted for a couple of million years. Yeah. That's know? so cool. Which of course can happen. You know, that's perfectly reasonable. But it also tells us, I think, that, damn, there was a lot more shit going on back then that we just don't know about. We have so few of the pieces of, of the puzzle that, you know, we you, every time right. we find something, it's like, shit, there's a whole new section of the puzzle we didn't know about. You know, we're not filling in so much as expanding the puzzle. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's a great analogy. That's exactly what we're doing. And it's it's actually it's fascinating and frustrating because you think, you, you know, you think you're filling in. Then you're like, holy crap, this piece means that there's this whole weird section of the puzzle. What the hell? So it's yeah, great yeah. and and frustrating at the same time. So this is, you know, Homo Naledi, to remind everybody, was discovered in 2015 or presented in 2015. I think it was discovered in 2013 initially. Um, it was announced in 2015. And uh, it is a, a very small, like four and a half feet tall hominid, very modern though in its posture and its limbs Brain capacity about half that of a modern human, but some skull features that like, whoa, are really a throwback to the Australopithecine. So very strange. Curved fingers, shoulders and, and pelvis are, are more Australopithecine. Very interesting. So do, I can't remember. Do, uh, do they think that it was arboreal? Because they found it in a cave, yeah, which is kind of weird. Probably not, but probably just retained those features. But maybe yeah. it was doing something that kept it. Yeah, it's hard to say. All right. Let's go back to number one. So far, specimens have been found from at least 18 individuals, and researchers expect the cave contains many more specimens. So that would be a lot of individuals in one find. That would make it one of the biggest fossil hominid finds ever. Jay, you think this one is a fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science, and this one is... Say it. Wait, Steve, before you say it. Yeah. Oh, Jay. This one is science. Yeah, baby. Yes. Weren't there like thousands of fragments found? Hundreds. Yeah, 1,500. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, there you go. Not quite thousands. Thousands fragments. And this is pretty cool. Who was this guy? What's the guy's name that discovered it? And what, what else? He had other hugely major, incredibly awesome discoveries before this. What, what did he do? I forget. Well, remember, these fossils were initially found by amateur cave explorers. And, the, the, and, the, and then they were brought to you know the scientists. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But still, he's the main guy. He's the lead guy. Right, right, right. So it's an so, amazing, amazing career. The, the number initially was 15 individuals, at least 15 individuals, but they found another part of the cave. It's actually another cave, part of this complex, and there are three more individuals they found in there, including a child. Cave-plex. 
So it called something like a child, star, awesome. like rising star. Yes, it's the rising star like cave system. The rising rising star cave system, uh, and from the Dean Naledi chamber, which is where the Naledi name comes from. Not but now they found some from a new chamber. Chamber of Secrets. The the team, Bob. This is led by Professor Lee Berger from the University. Yes. Of Yep. Water strand in Johannesburg, Berg. South Africa. So that's hey, the main. Jo- Joshie's <laughs> great great uncle. Right. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, so there are actually three papers published, you know, with with analyzing these new these new finds. But that brings the number up to at least eighteen individuals. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the number in a second. But let's go to number two. Uh, evidence suggests that the Naledi bones were likely brought to the cave by a predator. Bob, Evan, and Carrie, you think this one is the fiction? And, of course, this one is the fiction. Although that is not as unusual as you might think because I stole that from another cave where that's Hmm. exactly what happened. It was Australopithecines, however. And at first they thought – so we found a bunch of Australopithecine fossils in a cave with a lot of other animals. We're like, oh, the humans were hunting these animals and bringing them back to the cave. And then they found a skull with – with uh, canine marks. marks through it, yeah. So it was probably a large cat um, who was bringing, you know, the, its its prey to a tree, eating mm. them, and then dropping the bones, which were full collecting in the washing downstream and collecting in this cave. And humans were just one prey among many. Um, we were not the hunters. Yeah, we but still, our, our main our main problem was that. Uh, Naladi was found deep in this inaccessible part of the cave, which an animal wouldn't. Okay, so deep. there are multiple hypotheses as to how the Naledi bones got in this cave complex. Uh, one hypothesis is that it was dragged there by predators, uh, and the actual reason why we don't think that. Not because predators don't bring their prey deep into their lairs, into their cave, but because um, we, fa- we found no other bones. You know, so mm. there's there's it doesn't make oh. sense that a pred that a that a large cat or some predator would be just eating Naledi and no other animals. Yeah, yeah but what about what about uh, tooth marks on the bones? Yeah, there's that also be, that. Yeah, the that, bones that'd be don't, huge evidence. The, the bones don't show against. evidence of predation and. There's no other bones there, so it does. It doesn't. It's not what we would expect to find if there was a predator just depositing our bones there. So that's not it. Another possibility is that the Naledi got trapped in the cave, and and like in one event and died. But the bones were clearly deposited over different periods of time. So there would have been, had to have been multiple events of people getting trapped in this cave, which doesn't make sense. Well, did they live there? Did they not live there? They did not live there. There's no evidence of occupation. Oh, okay. And and also, this would be a pretty shitty place to live. But gotcha. Yeah, but there's no evidence of occupation. And there's no evidence. They're not covered, so technically it's not a burial, but hold that thought. And then (laughs) there's no evidence of of being washed into the cave. There's no uh, silts or uh, or other mixture of dirt or that you would expect to find there if this was the result of, of water washing things into the cave. And again, why would it be only the Naledi bones? It's mass murder. Uh, there's no way. It's like, what are they called? Those pit tomb things where like caves are discovered later and they had like a hole in the top. No. And things fell in and no, died. No. Okay. Nope. Hmm. Good thought. All right. So this is the, this is the current hypothesis that the Naledi 
were depositing their dead there on purpose. Huh. They so Why? it's technically like not burying crime? Not burying because in order to quote unquote be buried, you have to cover them in some way. These were gotcha. not covered. They were just dragged into the cave and deposited there. So they, this was a disposal area for dead Naledi. So that awesome is new behavior. That's new behavior in the hominid line, you know, with them. So this is the oldest evidence of, of humans doing that, of our ancestors doing that. Is um, that how elephants do it? Yeah, I think – well, I think they just go there to die, Oh, they right? go there and, and the die. Yeah, that's right. true. And, but then yeah. they go visit it or whatever, which is weird. Okay. So – but it's it's maybe – it's not burial, but it's – I would think of this as like a death ritual. It's funerary. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We don't know. We don't know what they were doing. There's no evidence of like tools being buried with them or flowers with, from, because of pollen or anything. So there, there's no evidence of, of like with, with Neanderthals and humans, there's evidence of a ritual burial. Yeah. Here, but it could just be to evidence. protect them from like, you know, they were rotting. They smelled bad. You know, there could be all yeah. sorts of reasons you'd want to deposit maybe, dead exactly. Maybe they didn't want them to rise as zombies, die <laughs> zombies. That right. is a very sophisticated thought. <laughs> or vampires. Yeah. <laughs> But so they were purposely bringing these bodies into a remote, protected cave that was really hard to get to and leaving them there. All uh, right. Here's a question. Why yeah. Why was it so fragmented if they were just resting there for tens of thousands of years? Because your bodies fall, bodies fall apart. Yeah. Bones fall frag. apart? Yeah, they do. Sure. Like the cartilage and stuff. Bodies aren't articulated. When you find bones, they're usually... Don't yeah, disconnected. Like, yeah, but usually your, you know, your femur was fairly intact and not like 20 pieces. Oh, you're saying why are the individual bones all broken up? Right. Well, what if they just brought them in there and like hocked them? Uh, so even old. though they were actually they were very good condition for this is the, you know the one of if not the most complete specimen was found in this cave complex. One of the new oh, okay. ones is like now like better than Lucy. They're saying in terms of how complete that it is. So, but still, there's you know caves. There still could be. You know, uh, rocks can fall from the ceiling or whatever. Well, there's things also probably happen. predators in the cave, like you know, bats and things eat things, and things live be- down there, even if they. Yeah, and it's a quarter of a million years we're talking. Yeah, yeah. but still, they're remarkably preserved. Uh, not perfectly, but it's good. It was a good place to preserve bones. So here's the thing: the bones that we've discovered so far are from a tiny fraction of this cave and there could be hundreds of individuals in there they don't know they really have no idea there could be a lot of individuals imagine if they were doing this over thousands of years i mean who knows i mean they could have been oh my god how many individual specimens did they drag in there for disposal talk about an embarrassment of riches what the hell so there are we there will be other finds here. So and, and they're ex- obviously very excited about this because rarely do we have so many individual specimens. This means we have we can we can find out what the composition of the community was, you know, we, we different specimens at different ages and we know we have the you know the males and the females together so we know what the sexual dimorphism is. You think about it, like other species, sometimes we don't even know. We don't even know if we have a male and a female of one species that we're counting as two species because yeah. you know we think about that's, that. That's messed up. Yeah, mm-hmm. but here we have families, you know, we have even if they're not obviously you know, individually related an yeah, actual children, adults, we have males like, and females, uh, adults, children. Yeah, we could piece together from these specimens the the, the full you know, representative sample of their community. Think dude, about can't we that. Just, can't we just send those stupid Prometheus probes into the damn cave and map the whole damn thing out? 
<laughs> Just <laughs> ignore that. Here's yeah. the other Prometheus, thing. Thanks for that. They're reminder. deliberately not going to excavate the entire cave system, though. Why? Because they want <laughs> to. They want to preserve some of the of the fossils for future technology. Sure. Which, think about makes it, makes, real, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, when we get enough specimens, okay, with our current technology, we're pretty much going to learn as much as we're going to learn from the specimens in here. Now we're just going to leave it alone. Who knows what the hell we're going to have in 100 years, in 200 years. We're going to leave some of it undisturbed for future scientists and future technology. Which kind that's of cool. cool. That's yeah. very cool. That's that forward thinking that Absolutely. we need more of. So how did they date it? How did they date it? They used six independent dating methods um, to create the date range that I gave you there. Uh, mostly different types of you know radioactive dating, not not radiocarbon dating, but uh, but other methods that are that are extremely reliable. But the, the good thing is with so they use like the uranium thorium dating method, and there's also I think uranium dental dating method that they used, and uh, you know various methods. So it's still a big range, Steve. Um, in terms, you know, not really hundred thousand, hundred thousand year range between the two dates. That's about right, you know, for for the kind of dating method. That's pretty good. Got to remember, you know, that cave could have been over that period of time, right? That could have been used. Who knows? Yeah, that that'd be cool. Amazing find. This is an absolutely amazing find. But you not know, amazing science or fiction. Five years ago, we had no idea <laughs> Homo naledi even existed. That's right. Yeah, that's you know? yeah. crazy. We have two new gaps now. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> and think again, Go if you want to talk about you know the transitional fossil thing, think about what a transitional fossil this is. It's you know human, very human from the neck down in terms of it's absolutely bipedal. It's got a f- fully upright stature. Limbs are very human, but they're not human because they have some very primitive traits like the curved fingers. And the brain cat case for its size is only about half the size of a modern human. It's it's clearly not a human. You know, it's clearly another species, but it's clearly not a chimpanzee or an ape. It's mm. humanoid. It's bipedal. It stands upright. It walks around. That's and, awesome. And it's not a diseased individual because it's we have 18 different individuals. It's, it's a leper colony. It's not the star child. It's a leprechaun. Wouldn't that be great? It's just something we would never think of. It's like, oh yeah, they all live there because they were in, um, they were ostracized. Yeah, <laughs> that makes them Australopithecus. Yeah, right. Austra. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! <laughs> nice. Uh, um, Don't confuse people, Evan. <laughs> too late. I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see a um, you know, a, uh, a rendering of what they could have looked like with their skin and muscles and fat. I can't wait until the stuff has been studied enough that they can send it on tour. I can't I want to see them. They've already they bring done one that. back to life. They've really? already Jurassic, done that. A la Jurassic Park. That's what they I put think. them on tour already in museums. Yeah. Oh, man, didn't come to L.A. They might do it again. I, I yeah, saw a, I saw a skull in the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York. A Naledi yeah. skull? A yeah. real one? No, you never a, see the cast. real ones. You never, you see, never real see the real ones. Well, so. no, but I'm saying like with Lucy. Lucy went on tour. True. Yeah. You know, like I, yeah. I want to see it. Yeah, and the Letty's already at, at the Smithsonian too, I think. Yeah. In the yeah, Human yeah. Origins Hall. You don't want to yeah, see yeah. a 3D printed rendering of it, no? No, I want to uh. see one in the flesh, even though there's <laughs> flesh the, on yeah. it. <laughs> in the bone. In the bone. In the marrow. <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. All right. 
submitted this week by listener Paul. Paul from Silicon Valley. All the atoms of our bodies will be blown into space in the disintegration of the solar system to live on forever as mass or energy. That is what we should be teaching our children, not fairy tales about angels and seeing grandma in heaven. Ah. That was said by Carolyn Porco from a Newsweek article. Carolyn's very, very cool. She's very quotable, Uh, too. Very quotable, indeed. There's a ton of quotes from her. She's an American planetary scientist known for her work in the exploration of the outer solar system, beginning with her imaging work on the Voyager missions to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in the 1980s, and she leads the imaging science team on the Cassini mission currently in orbit around Saturn, and she's an expert on planetary rings and the Saturnian moon, Enceladus. Enceladus, Enceladus. yeah. Enceladus. Cool. Yes, yeah. Yeah, she's very cool. All right, thanks, Evan. Thank you. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Anytime. Cheers, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Hey, just want to point out that when the show goes up, because this show will be going up early on Saturday morning, the reason for that and the reason we're recording on Tuesday is because we're going to be in the SGU studio Saturday, May 13th, starting at 1 o'clock. We're going to be live streaming some extra content. So if you are listening to this episode in time, join us on our Facebook page, 1 p.m. Eastern time for some extra live SGU. Join us. Yay. And and we will all be there. Yeah, yeah we'll be Kara there in person. will be in the studio with us. The Yay. Fab Five. So we'll <laughs> see you guys all on Saturday. I'll be there. Yay. Absolutely. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.